are on trial. I hear that there have been several successful evenings already uh, with lots of uh, vibrant discussions. So looking forward to looking forward to a third evening of uh, the Birkbeck Law School's putting of the European uh, Union on trial. So um, my name is Stuart Mota. I'm Deputy Dean of the Law School. And I will introduce the panelists in more detail just before they speak, but I will just to give you a, an outline of proceedings today, I will make a few introductory remarks and then I will introduce each of our uh, speakers to come and speak for about 10 minutes and then there will be, I think, plenty of time for uh, a discussion uh, and questions uh, from you. I also also want at the outset to thank uh, Professor Michelle Everson, who has done a lot of the coordinating uh, of uh, this week of events, and also Ruth Saunders, who has been uh, quite actively involved in uh, organizing and publicizing this event. So thank you both uh, very much. The panelists, I'll, I'll say a little bit more about them, but they're uh, Nadine Elanani, uh, Fortis Burgess, Evan Anopoulos and Marko Milokovic. I'll introduce you in more detail just before you speak. But I wanted to kick off this discussion on the EU uh, and migration by um, uh, presenting two propositions. One is that Europe is redundant. And to ask the question, if Europe is redundant, what is the nature of this redundancy? And second, that the refugee is redundant. And what does it mean to claim that the refugee is redundant? And in particular, what is, it, what is the relationship between these two ideas? So in what sense might Europe be redundant? I want to start with the beginning of what is today regarded as the European project, which I would say from its outset was a racial project as well as an economic project. As a racial and economic project, it has its origins in the post-war period in Germany and the significant developments around German auto-liberalism uh, which we can go back, we can trace back to the, uh, the work of uh, prominent Christian Democrats uh, such as Ludwig Erhard. <coughs> in his speeches in 1948, Erhard, who was, was to go on to become German Chancellor between 1963 and 1966, drew a sharp distinction between the social uh, responsibilities of the state and its economic responsibilities. And what the Christian Democrats were trying to do in the late 1940s and 1950s was to draw a wedge between National Socialism, the fascist ideologies of the German state, and what was an attempt to recover the state in the face of National Socialism or Fascism. And the... I think I know what's... Maybe two microphones close to each other. So, what the Christian Democrats and the Ordo Liberals were trying to do uh, 
what's going on? Is it me being too close to the mic, far away from it? Just point your mic from the speaker. That way. <coughs> okay, great, thanks. Switch that one off. Yeah. They're all off. <laughs> I'm sorry about this. Okay. Thank you. Um, what the Christian Democrats were trying to do was, I was saying, was draw a distinction between the national socialist state or the fascist state and was what was going to emerge as uh, the post-war uh, West German state. And it was in this context that the Freiburg School of Order Liberalism um, gave rise to uh, an idea of economic responsibility uh, uh, very much focused on the, uh, uh, the human subject as an economic subject. It seems to me, so we, we know that these ideas were also later matured in the Chicago School Economics uh, of the 1970s where the individual was supposed to become an entrepreneur of themselves. But these economic developments in uh, West Germany were not taking place in some kind of historical vacuum. It was taking place in the context of a crisis in Europe. And the crisis in Europe, going back even further to the 1930s, could be summed up in Paul Valeri's comments, Paul Valeri, a very important European thinker, but let me just quote you some of the sentiments that he expressed in relation to the crisis of the European spirit. He says this, looking at the many achievements of the world, he says, the most, and I quote, the most astonishing and fruitful have been the work of a tiny portion of humanity living in a very small area compared to the whole of the habitable lands. This privileged place was Europe, and the European man the European spirit was the author of these wonders. <coughs> what then is Europe, Valeri asks. It is a kind of cape of the old continent, a western appendix of Asia. It looks naturally towards the west. On the south it is bordered by a famous sea whose role, or I should say function, has been wonderfully effective in the development of that European spirit with which we are concerned. What Valeri is lamenting is the crisis of an idea that Europe was the brain of the world. And this is the sense in which Europe is a racial formation. It believes itself to be the headland of a vast Asian continent. But on the other hand, embedded in Valeri's text is also Europe's anxiety. It may just be the appendix of Asia. And we know about the appendix. It is a redundant organ uh, that uh, harkens back to when we were eating grass and needed to process, uh, ne you know, needed to proce process uncooked veg vegetative materials. So for Valeri already, the problem of Europe's redundancy had presented itself. So it is in that sense, I think, that we are currently facing a, a question of the redundant the redundancy of Europe that is not to say that it is to be dismissed I think the challenge on the left is to ask itself the question what are we to make of Europe when you look around this room 
you know, we, we see people from very different backgrounds and histories, and it is for us to ask ourselves the question, what does Europe mean to us? After all, we are here because they were there, and we want to hold on to that idea of the relationship between Europe and the rest of, uh, supposedly, the rest of the world. Secondly, my point about the refugee being redundant. We know that what has been termed the refugee crisis of the summer of 2015 uh, has, uh, and I know my colleagues on the panel will speak much more about this, has been one of the uh, elements that have provoked and informed the debate around uh, the European Union, uh, its borders uh, and its future. Schengen, we know, uh, is in crisis, as are the various agreements around the movement, free movement uh, of people. So in, in some way, the, the demand of the refugee, the demand made by the refugee, has also been part of the European crisis we're thinking about. The refugees are redundant in another sense, in that the determination of refugee status always comes too late. When the state recognizes you as a refugee, you have already made the decision uh, to uh, remove yourself from a position of danger, uh, to, uh, uh, to organize a journey, uh, to leave a home and a community, uh, and in a sense, to be driven into a form of exile. So the state's determination of whether or not you're a refugee comes arguably too late, and in that sense it is a redundancy. This is not to say that the position of exile should be valorized. So what does it mean if we think about uh, the refugee in terms of exile? What are we to make of this <coughs> concept of exile? Here I think Edward Said's thinking is very important. To quote Said, he says, is it not true that the views of exile in literature and moreover in religion obscure what is truly horrendous, that exile is irremediably secular and unbearably historical, that it is produced by human beings and that like death, but without death's ultimate mercy, it has torn millions of people from the nourishment of tradition, family and geography. Nonetheless, Said used exile uh, and deployed exile in a sort of dialectical struggle against the nation and nationalism. And this is how I want to connect uh, the problem of exile, the nature of exile, the question of exile, with the sort of resurgent nationalism that we're seeing uh, in Europe today. If exile is going to be a site from which we think about what it means to be in Europe, then arguably we need to turn ourselves into inhabiting Europe with the ethos of exile. So what would the ethos of exile be? I draw from Adorno uh, who said, uh, what it means uh, to have a, a moral imperative in the context of thinking about exile is, to not, is not to be at home in one's home. Not to be at home in one's home. That is to say, to question the being at homeness, the sense in which we can have some certainty about what our home is. And it seems to me, whether it's, you know, I, I think the question about Britain, or the UK and Europe today, 
is also a question about whether the UK can be at home in Europe. What does it mean for you or I to be at home in the UK or indeed in Europe? And what would it mean for us to put these ideas into question? We could argue that a certain kind of neoliberal globalization is in crisis. I mentioned some of the roots of this crisis at the beginning uh, of my talk. Uh, part of that crisis is, uh, part of the response to that crisis is to reassert the prominence of the nation state. But we know that this nation state or this idea of nation is not in itself an innocent uh, 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 phenomenon. Uh, so I think we should throw these ideas into question, that of Europe, that of the refugee, that of exile, and that of nation. And I hope that in the discussion that we're going to have from uh, our contributions today and from you, hearing your thoughts and questions, we will arrive at some of the answers to these problems. So thank you very much. That's my uh, <laughs> opening, uh, which was probably maybe a little bit over 10 minutes. <laughs> OK, so now I will introduce uh, my colleagues. Dr. Nadil Nadine Elanani, whose uh, research includes working on uh, international and EU refugee law, uh, is, uh, does work on, on human rights, uh, critical legal theory, and feminist legal theory, uh, to speak to us uh, about. I think leads on to um, what I have to say. Um, I suppose I'm going to make more of an argument for Britain being redundant, I think, but I'm not sure. Anyway, <laughs> let's see. Um, so, uh, first I'd really like to thank Michelle for inviting me onto this panel. Um, I feel quite grateful in relation to the timing to have the opportunity to speak about this particular issue of so-called migration crisis at this particular time. Um, but having said that, um, gratitude aside, I do always feel uncomfortable um, being invited to speak on the issue of migration crisis. Um, I don't see migration or the movement of people to better their lives as a crisis. Um, instead, I see fortified, militarized borders, restrictive immigration control, and structural racism and oppression as being crisis. Um, those living in northern countries uh, tend to think of uh, migration or speak of migration crisis only when it's other people doing the moving. Um, when they talk about themselves as moving, they are going on holiday or moving abroad or having a gap year or living as an expat. <laughs> um, and so what I'm going to say today um, is very much a reflection on what it means to be talking about migration crisis in this space, meaning Britain, um, and at this particular time. So in the days, um, on the last days of campaigning in the run-up to the EU referendum, a referendum which has been almost entirely eclipsed um, by the issue of migration. Um, in a nutshell, my talk warns against waiting or indeed voting for Lexit. And by Lexit, of course, I mean the notion that there is or there has emerged a left-wing argument for voting leave in the upcoming <coughs> referendum. 
Um, waiting for Lexit, I've come to understand waiting for Lexit to be, or is to be that frog in that cautionary tale. You know, the one that sits in boiling water as it slowly boils until it's too late. I was that frog. Um, I stayed quiet on the question of the EU referendum for some time. I was waiting, hoping for a strong left argument for exit, Lexit, to emerge. Um, I've taught European Union law for a long time, both at this institution and previous, um, at least two other institutions. Um, and I've always tried to, as my students who are here, I recognize some of you in the audience, they will know that I've tried to instill in them a healthy skepticism around the EU. I think I've worked very hard to show them that it's possible to be critical of the neoliberal capitalist imperialist EU and not fall into the anti-migrant sovereignty fetishizing UKIP camp. And so when the EU referendum was first announced, um, I made the Lexit argument when the topic would come up casually in conversation. I'd say a vote for the EU is a vote for capitalism. It's a vote for militarized borders. It's a vote for austerity. Um, but the sad reality is that that argument has elicited only the minutest of echoes. So I've come to see Lexit as a dream that hasn't been realized and waiting for Lexit has been like waiting for Godot. In more ways than one, um, Graham Hassel has aptly described Beckett's play of that name as being a quote, a metaphor for mainland Britain where society has ever been blighted by a greedy ruling elite, keeping the working classes passive and ignorant by whatever means. And the means adopted by the Brexit campaign in a bid to sway voters to vote to leave the EU has primarily consisted of scaremongering on the issue of migration. Of course, it isn't that I expected better of Nigel Farage and the likes of Michael Gove and Boris Johnson, but what I hoped is that they wouldn't succeed as they have done, aided by, of course, the mainstream British media, in drowning out the possibility for a left movement to emerge in opposition to the EU. Um, in, despite my early hopes, the Brexit campaign has been uh, entirely dominated by the ugliest form of Euroscepticism imaginable. There hasn't been the space that I've had in my lectures to kind of inculcate a, a different view um, of the EU. As Priyam Vada Gopal has put it, a vote for Brexit is a vote for, quote, the magnificent lie that exploitation, austerity, greed, and impoverishment have all come to Britain from the nasty outside. It's quite difficult for me to choose a low point over the months of campaigning. Of course, that's not surprising when you're choosing between Nigel Farage and David Cameron. But was it when Nigel Farage had the gall to say to a black woman who challenged him on the racist rhetoric of the Brexit campaign in the course of a live televised debate that he is, quote, used to being demonized? Or was it when Michael Gove had an Islamophobic rant about Turkish birth rates and criminality? Or was it when the UKIP donor-funded Leave EU's recent tweet um, emerged saying, act now before we see an Orlando-style tragedy here before too long? Um, it is, of course, as I said, a nightmare scenario to have to choose between Cameron and Farage. Um, it's a very sad choice to be faced with for any anti-racist and anti-capitalist. Uh, with the debate on the EU referendum eclipsed by the topic of migration, it's no surprise that Cameron himself is really struggling to hold the fort, having spent the last five, six years peddling the lie 
that migrants are to blame for society's ills rather than, at least on his watch, his government of millionaires and their penchant for murderous cuts. But if Britain does vote leave, it does so on the terms of the racist and xenophobic Brexit campaign. A, vote, um, a leave vote would provide a mandate for these Brexit leaders to at least push for Fortress Britain, which of course already exists, as I'm sure the other speakers will show. Fortress Britain exists within Fortress Europe, and Fortress Britain certainly exists insofar as it can exist as a fortress alone, even within the borders of Europe. It is the most fortified of EU countries. It's not part of Schengen. It has negotiated for itself a flexible opt-out in relation to EU laws on asylum and immigration, and it has consistently uh, uh, used that opt-out to opt out of any rights-enhancing uh, legislation in relation to protecting um, asylum seekers, and has opted in whenever there are restrictive measures that would help it to fortify um, its capacity to exclude um, those trying to enter. There is no refugee crisis in Britain, it's important to point out. Uh, Britain has barely increased its resettlement quota in light of the movement of so many desperate Syrians. Uh, a similar number of asylum applications are made this year in Britain as were made in 2008, unlike the higher numbers we see in other EU countries. Britain has been the strongest um, advocate of the EU Dublin regulation, one of the most restrictive um, uh, EU laws on asylum, um, which has been pushed for by northern countries such as Britain, which essentially sees asylum seekers confined to southern uh, European states, sometimes under conditions found to be by the European Court of Human Rights to be inhuman and degrading. We will see no loosening of Britain's borders if it leaves the EU, quite the opposite. And obviously you can probably all see how pained I am to be putting this argument um, and yes, my students will no doubt see the irony. Nor is, really hate Cameron <laughs> nor is there a migration crisis in Britain. Um, here I am even forced to, um, to buy into the divide between the migrant and the refugee. Again, an argument I consistently try to break down in theoretical terms. Um, there is no migration crisis in Britain. The only crisis identifiable is that caused by a capitalist system which sees the ongoing enrichment of um, the few and the impoverishment of the many. Capitalist structures enable oppression on a mass scale. Leaving the EU isn't going to ameliorate this. In fact, if we just think of one small example, the British government was so afraid that the EU might empower British workers that it negotiated an opt-out from the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union because it contains a guarantee for the right to strike for workers. Unlike in other EU countries, there is no right to strike. In Britain, successive governments have legislated to curtail the possibility for industrial action, and of course, we've seen the most recent and most vicious assault in the Trade Union Act of 2016. Um, so, despite the rhetoric about migrants being a drain on resources, the HMRC tax figures of 2013 to 14 show that migrants contributed 2.5 billion more than they took out in benefits. Pains me to say it, and quite frankly, I wouldn't care if they took out more than they did put in. I'm not going to get into myth-busting around migration, there's plenty of literature to read on that um, for those who care to nor am I going to be drawn into a debate about whether or not migrants enrich the societies in which they live. Why? Because fundamentally that is a racist question. 
It erases a history of colonialism, as Stuart was mentioning, which has set in motion the migration of today and assumes a pre-existing pre static society, membership which can only be validly determined by birthright. Migrants have the least capital and so tend to be the easiest to exploit. We've seen this in, unrelent in the unrelenting scapegoating of migrants that has characterized the Brexit campaign. It's a very convenient distraction from the material consequences of the current government's austerity measures. The run-up to the EU referendum has shown Britain for what it is, woodwork. The washed-up bracken of the British Empire and the ugly flotsam of its legacy of racism. <coughs> from this woodwork, the Brexiters have emerged. They've long been dreaming of the days of empire when Britain was defined by its racial and cultural <coughs> superiority. And the EU referendum has provided them with the opportunity to realize the dream of toughing out their neighbors. It's EU migrants up for debate right now. But watch this space, given half the chance, they will kick the rest of them out too. A leave vote would legitimize the racism that is at the core of the Brexit campaign and would provide a validating framework for the enactment of the ugly promises that they have made. Take, for example, their wish for an Australian-style immigration system, an idea originally proposed by Tony Blair, I'm only mentioning people I dislike immensely in this talk, as you can see, inspired by Australia's Pacific solution, and we know what that looks like. Visas for the white and privileged, while brown and black refugees set themselves on fire in prisons on remote Pacific islands. And so I'm going to end by saying, be careful what you wish for, be careful what you vote for. Thank you. Well, thanks very much, Nadine. Uh, so our next speaker is Fortis Vergas, uh, who's from the School of Law at the University of Manchester. Uh, he uh, researches on EU law and international human rights. Uh, his PhD thesis from Cambridge examined collective labour rights um, within the constitutional structure of the EU. Thanks. Well, thank you, Stuart, and thank you, Michelle, for setting this debate up. And actually, when Michelle asked me to come and participate, my first thought was to be this constitutional scholar that I usually am and come up with brilliant theories. And then I spent a couple of months at refugee camps in Greece doing research there on the field. So then my second instinct as an academic was to come up with a brilliant PowerPoint with statistics and numbers and what the Commission reports and what the UN High Commission for Refugees reports. Up until a few days ago when I was marking EU law scripts for Manchester, reading quotes by Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage in them as arguments in favor of the Brexit. And as I was doing that, I get a text message from a friend working for the UN High Commission for Refugees in Greece. And she's Greek, so she started off with the usual Greek you know, calling out to me. She said, Malaka, I'm crying. <laughs> and of course, I wanted to see why my friend was crying. And working for the UN High Commission of Refugees, he learned that he had managed to relocate a family which was initially not actually eligible for reloca uh, relocation to a hotel after five months, three of which were spent in Idomeni, which was the bleakest of the camps out there in Greece, effectively a field at the Greek-Macedonian border. And she had done that in her own time, trying on her own, 
and she had managed to get them to get a hot shower. And when that happened, the mother of the family sent her a text and a photo of the kids smiling. And my friend couldn't retain her tears. So instead, I thought about talking not about statistics or data or reports, but how things actually are on the ground, regardless of what the commission might be reporting, regardless of what any international institution might be reporting. So right now, especially after the March agreement between Turkey and Greece, 60,000 people are effectively imprisoned in Greece, waiting for the fates to be decided by the powers that be. 43 camps have been set up, hotspots, the government calls them, effectively concentration camps, have been set up over the last two and a half months, some of them in a very hasty manner, in an attempt by the Greek government to effectively reach the targets set by the Commission and by um, the common agreement between Turkey and the EU in late March. So the idea, for those of you who don't know, after the 20th of March, is for everybody who crosses uh, the, the borders, the European borders, from Turkey to either Greece or Italy, be effectively deported back to Turkey, which is now considered a safe third country. <coughs> and if you consider that about 15% of, um, of the refugees right now in Greece are ethnically Kurds, Yazidi Turks, uh, Yazidi Kurds from Syria and southern Turkey, you can see how Turkey is probably not a safe third country for them. So this works in paper perfectly. So if you read the reports that the UN High Commission of Refugees has been putting out for the last month or so, it seems as if this project has been working brilliantly. So you have these 43 camps, relocation, asylum processes, relocation, family reunification processes have started to produce some results. And the idea is to keep people safely in these camps for a couple of months up until their applications are processed. Now the truth is a bit off. In truth, out of those 43 camps, probably 15 to 20 are of really humane conditions. And by humane conditions, I mean basic sanitation, electricity, uh, some health provision, some in some of them, in a small number of them, some provision for um, for children like education, play, whatever. In the latest of them, though, the ones that opened after in after mid-May, the situation is pretty bleak. Some of them are abandoned, and ever will actually Everstock will connect to what I'm about to say because some of them are set within abandoned industrial buildings that became abandoned due to the economic crisis of the last five years, <coughs> abandoned hostels and hotels in Athens, but some of them are <coughs> set again in fields awaiting for the UN to set up tents. Now, the idea again is for this to be a temporary solution for people awaiting for their application process to be processed. And that's what the EU has pledged, that's what the UN has pledged, that's what Greece has pledged. In reality, up until 20 days ago, in order for you to apply for asylum or relocation in any of the European countries, the process was thus. You had to wait in your camp or wherever you were stationed, your tent, 
up until a moment in time, a moment in the day arrived, let's say you're uh, from India or from Pakistan or from Afghanistan, there was a set hour for Pakistanis, 10 to 11, to place a Skype call to the asylum service in Athens. If you didn't have Wi-Fi, if you didn't have a mobile phone, and even if you, and if you didn't manage to secure that connection, and if you didn't manage to get somebody to pick up that connection from Athens, you weren't even able to submit an application in the first place. Now, the reason that happened was shortages, staff shortages in the asylum services, and staff shortages on the part of the EU that had sent, presumably, experts on the field None of those experts was doing any real admin job, any real admin work. The admin work on the field is being carried predominantly by NGOs. Up until a couple of months ago, in a, in a slightly disorganized manner, so some NGOs are registered and are working formally, some are working informally, some are not NGOs, they're essentially solidarity groups of volunteers who just turn up and help with various issues. One of those issues was helping people set up those Skype calls. So if you were a volunteer two months ago in Idomeni, you might be asked to produce your mobile phone to a Syrian to be able to place a call in Athens over Skype and have somebody pick up. Now, obviously, that was not a process. That, by the way, was reported by every single one of the formal institutions as asylum processes that are being carried, uh, carried on. So on paper, everything looked brilliant and very humane. The pre-registration, the formal pre-registration process with admin staff by the asylum service going on the field, going to the refugees instead of having the refugees call them, began yesterday. And by yesterday, I mean literally yesterday. It was to begin a week ago. So the idea is having the asylum service and the UN High Commission of Refugees sending out teams in the various camps in order to pre-register refugees and informal migrants, whatever that is. The problem is with the pre-registration process that it will probably take six months, even though the initial target is for two. So the pre-registration process, what the pre-registration process does is it assigns you a number. It gives you a small band that you are supposed to be wearing for the next two months, and any analogies that you could make, please make them. So, and you're not supposed to use that band because that's your ID number that will be used for the asylum processes down the road. And then if you, uh, during the pre-registration process, you get your ID, you get your name in a list, and then there's a pledge by the authorities for you to receive a text message, an SMS, sometime by the end of summer. So the goal right now is July 30th. And on that SMS, you will be provided with a date of an appointment with the asylum services, either in Athens or Thessaloniki, or I think, if I'm not mistaken, on Lesbos, the, the, uh, the, uh, on Mytilene, the capital of Lesbos. So again, the idea is for somebody to be waiting in these camps for months, and actually the service, the asylum service concedes to the fact that the appointments might take place in November or December. So the idea right now is to keep people in these temporary camps that are anything but for the next six months at least until their application process is processed. And obviously if your application is to be rejected, you have the right to an appeal, so add another six months to that. 
On top of that, if you have hap if you happen to have landed on European ground after the 20th of March, every member state has the right to declare your application as inadmissible. One of the grounds of inadmissibility is your potential, your option, to apply for asylum in a safe third country. And what is that safe third country? Turkey. It doesn't really matter if the country isn't safe, as long as you have the right to apply to the safe third country. It doesn't really matter if the third, safe third country grants you asylum. As long as you have the option, your application is inadmissible in the European Union period. So everybody who crosses the borders after the 20th of March is effectively stuck in Turkey. Well, the situation is pretty bleak as well. Now, the Commission has worked with Turkey and they have pledged 3 billion euros for, for, the last, for the next two years, 2 billion of which have already been given out. They have pledged um, reformation of the visa process with Turkey in return for effectively creating a huge concentration camp just outside our borders because these dark people don't look nice effectively in the EU. And the problem with that, to go back to what Stuart was discussing, that EU, uh, the Europe is not the EU. Europe is effectively a perception, an idea, if you will. And it's quite stark to be talking to people who come from Syria, highly educated, some of them having received postgraduate education in an EU member state, that don't, don't grasp the fact that they are asked to effectively relocate concentration camps outside Europe, where they would expect Europe to open their arms because solidarity, humanitarian ethos, and all that that is associated with the European culture, if you will, on the face of it. And that was actually, and again, to go back on the ground, Two months ago, I was in Idomeni, and I spent a couple of days there, a couple of, well, more than a couple of days there, volunteering. And as I was volunteering, I met a guy who was helping us out move boxes around, who was about my age, he was 35, father of two, an engineer, a civil engineer from, um, from Damascus. And his and that happened on the 19th of March. Remember, the 18th of March, the agreement between Turkey and the EU was signed. And we were trying to convince people that the borders were not going to open for them anymore. And that was it. And a week afterwards, you probably see, saw that in the news, the uh, Macedonian border police actually gassed down, uh, gassed down uh, two-year-olds and five-year-olds, trying to keep them out of the borders. Anyway, so I, as I was talking with Salam, he, he, he and was trying to tell him that, you know, from a legal point of view, you don't have the right to enter the European Union anymore. That's it. That statement has been, has been signed. The best that you can do is apply for asylum in Greece and see what happens. And he could not wrap his head around it. So he, he, he told me that he, he had done a master's in Uppsala, and he had worked in Uppsala for three years. He spoke, he spoke perfect Swedish. He spoke perfect English, probably better than mine. And he was educated, believing that Europe is not this economic monster, if you will, that would keep people in need outside its borders. And he, he could literally couldn't understand what, what was going on. He didn't grasp the political situation. He was sure he was quoting, uh, you know, 
articles from the Universal Declaration of the War of Man, he was sure that by mere culture, the Europeans would open their borders. Instead, Salam right now is at a camp at Yavata, waiting for his Skype call for the next week, and then waiting for a, uh, for a group to register him, to make him wear a band with an ID number for the next six months, and then probably kept out because he's too dark for us. And for those people who think that the darkists are, uh, those, the, the Syrians are too dark for us, so the likes of Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, who my students in Manchester quoted in their exam scripts, and that's not a very good thing to do, I should point out that according to the latest data from the Greek Asylum Service, we had 5,000 asylum applications and relocation applications sorry, 5,000 relocation applications over the last six months. And by relocation, I mean <coughs> your application to relocate to another member state than that what, uh, in which you're applying. So effectively to enter the European Union. 5,000 applications have been submitted. 300 and 500 have been accepted and processed and sent to the other member states. And out of these 300 and 500, 2,500 have been accepted by various member states of which the UK has accepted none. So no dark-skinned people coming our way. Nigel Farage should be very you know, comfortable about that. Now, let that sink in. So it's one, way, it's one thing to be discussing about theory. It's another thing to be discussing about how the EU portrays itself and how the EU actually shows herself to be behaving through its reports, through its memoranda. It's quite hard to see how things are actually playing out on the ground under the auspices of the EU, if you will, and under the, the monitoring of the EU, which accepts the situation to be the resolution of a humanitarian crisis when it's anything but. Thank you. Uh, so now we have uh, Ava Zanopoulos, uh, who is the Bob Alexander College Lecturer and Fellow uh, at the University of Cambridge. She works on EU law and constitutional and even administrative law. Thank you. Well, thanks, thanks very much, Michel, and all of you also for coming. It's really a great pleasure. Um, to be here. I will, um, I'm basically the second part of the Greek learning from the Greek experience thing. Um, Fotis has already gladly done the job of outlining some of the issues with regards to the migration crisis. Basically what I will do is put the whole thing into context, looking at the economic and uh, political conditions in Greece, and from that try to explore what that tells us about the question that Michelle raised in her blurb, which was, um, does the EU have the capacity to master crisis? I should begin, I think, by saying that I think it's extremely important to be looking at this question from the perspective of different states, uh, including non-member states. Um, <coughs> because there's, I mean, there's a tendency amongst EU scholars, and particularly lawyers, to look at the, you know, to fetishize the object and to look at the EU um, from the top on its own terms and often with little regard of what the EU means outside its own borders. This is not to say, of course, that the EU just means different things in different contexts and to adopt a completely nihilist or relativist position, but it's to make the point that the EU is an institutional design 
which we can only really comprehend by aggregating, by reconstructing both its internal and its external power dynamics. This is why I think that looking at the global <coughs> example is important for us, um, and to also contextualize the, the, the sort of where the, where the migration crisis uh, really happens. So in Greece, the reality is that um, seven years on to the crisis, uh, things have gone from worse uh, to worse. For all the shock therapy, there is absolutely no sign that the economy is recovering. Unemployment now is about to reach 30%, uh, and the Greek debt, in the name of which all this austerity is being imposed, uh, is about to hit 187% of the GDP. Last March, it was reported that Brexit might be again on the cards, as the country, for the first time again, has gone back into recession. The humanitarian and social crisis is also widening. In February 2016, the government said there is no way that another cuts to pensions will be made. There's been 11 cuts to the pension scheme since the crisis began. Two months later, May 2016, after a 48 hours general strike, which culminated in Parliament Square on the night of the vote, again, another cut to pension happened. More than 45%, I think, I have the statistics, of pensioners already had to sustain sometimes an entire family on a pension which is below the poverty line at 665 euros per month. Now, some of them might need to do that under the new national pension, uh, which is 384 euros. The anger has started going down the middle classes, with the first time lawyers and journalists uh, leading the march to Sindarman Square. Among this package was also what we call the Koftis, uh, which is, I think, the cotter or maybe the scissors, which basically enables further cuts to pass by executive decree, that is, without parliamentary debate, in the event that Greece doesn't meet its primary surplus targets. Democracy is nowhere to be seen in this uh, picture. One of many red lines that the government has crossed over the last months, these measures really carry the sign of a much deeper political crisis. From 2012 to 2015, the rise of Syriza, as well as the election of its election as the first radical left party in Europe, uh, made the suffering and humiliation of the Greek people almost bearable. Two days after the famous popular Ohi against austerity last July, the hope that is embedded in that vote was simply betrayed. What remains of Syriza after the split from the left platform has completely surrendered to the tutelage <coughs> of the Troika and became instead the first government, uh, the first left government, to implement what is probably the harsher of um, the three memoranda. The much dreaded Brexit, ironically enough, uh, perhaps might come to us with a slightly different face this time, uh, in the form of Schengen expulsion, uh, rendering Greece basically as a second-tier uh, buffer zone for what is now fortress Europe. Meanwhile, the neo-Nazi party Gordon Down, whose trial only resumed a couple of weeks ago uh, after a more than five months he had to spirit as a result of the ongoing lawyers' uh, strike, um, still keeps a secure third place in Parliament and has already taken upon itself to violently police the new EU-Turkey deal. Basically, you know, committing horrific acts of violence and terrorism uh, and, and, and um, 
aggression against our migrants. Now, what about the EU's response? Now, with fears of a, a pan-European contingent of an anti-austerity uh, government or um, the monetary union collapsing, because of course parties like Podemos or the left bloc in, in Portugal have considerably downtone their rhetoric on uh, the euro or the debt. Since then, basically, uh, Europe tries to revert to a narrative that um, <coughs> makes the crisis in Greece a distinctively economic, technical crisis, and also a distinctively Greek crisis. So I have quotes here for the head of the European analysis. The bigger issue now, they say, is the ongoing disagreement between the Europeans and the IMF over exactly the size of the fiscal adjustments that are necessary for the Greek situation. While Schäuble made clear that the refugee issue and the aid program for Greece should not be mixed. They are two different things. So European solidarity is not at play here. Greece's burden um, with regards in managing the European border crisis, and again, I like to use the also the word border crisis rather than migration crisis, needs not to be reciprocated basically in the economic and financial realm. That is what it means. This strategy, I think, attempts squarely to project onto the Greek crisis an interpretation that distorts and supplants reality, but also collective memory. Both the economic and the migration crisis originate in a wider crisis of capitalism and Western imperialism. For all the rhetoric about Europe as a peace project or a social Europe, Europe is an integral part of the institutional structures that are designed to preserve the existence and stability, importantly, of the transnational capitalist system, alongside, of course, other institutions as the IMF, the NATO, or the WTO. When the crisis hit the European continent, deep structural imbalances and asymmetries in the EU's institutional and constitutional DNA, um, as exemplified, for example, in the MEU, but also the Dublin regulation, which means that Greece carries most of the migration uh, crisis burden, um, served basically as a catalyst and reproductive mechanism of this crisis, of which the situation, I think, is Greece is only one of many other byproducts. As has been observed, the resulting crisis of hegemony has been met with a distinctively authoritarian term. Stricter rules, intransigent austerity, walls, and an unqualified commitment to TINA, both on the economic and the ideological <coughs> level. There's, of course, very much to be learned from the Greek experience and the Syriza experience. But what is characteristic of the EU's response to it <coughs> is a commitment to regime change or regime transformation. Already in 2011, the Papandreou government was replaced by a technocratic cabinet. The IMF also, because the EU is not alone in this, uh, its own road to redemption follows a slightly different route. So after 30 years of mastering the art of strong economic restructuring throughout the developing world, just a couple of weeks ago, the IMF had a change of heart, perhaps, and came out to openly admit that um, neoliberalism may not be the answer after all. In the Greek context, having fiddled their own rule to enable them to participate in the Greek loan, and having repeatedly denied allegations that the Greek debt was unsustainable, now again, a month ago, came out to say that actually um, they won't participate in uh, the third loan agreement unless there was a restructuring of the debt. The end of the an, an ideology, not quite, however. Already at the, at the outset of the crisis, the IMF has 
claimed that it changed its tactic. A recent study whose finding was published a couple of weeks ago, uh, carried by the University of Cambridge, revealed that uh, having studied basically the period from 1984 to 2014, that the IMF practices, and I quote again, it's not, um, uh, concluded that the gaps between rhetoric and practice in the IMF's lending activities reveal an escalating commitment to hypocrisy. On the Greek front as well, a deal has now been uh, secured that, um, in which the IMF will be participating in, in the next loan agreement. Um, and of course, it involves more austerity for Greece, and the so-called debt relief is only, might be considered from 2018 onwards, and does not actually, it's a bit of a misnomer, because it doesn't involve any restructuring or cancellation of the Greek debt. Now, with this small sketch of the context of the migration crisis, this is a country, remember, which is at the front line battling um, uh, with this border crisis. What does that tell us about the EU's capacity to master crisis? I think that such political maneuvers tells us that actually they might be excelling at it. Uh, they reproduce them, they prolong crisis, they contain them, they distort them, they control them, they avoid them. Sometimes they even fight over them. And for whose benefits? The banks? An exclusive Western lifestyle? The abstract ideals to which the EU adheres are very compelling. But at least in Greece, the evidence, I don't think, adds up. The narrative of Greece as Europe's problem child, which is really how we are being depicted, dismisses exactly the sort of reconstructive exercise we are trying to do here, um, and which attempts to me to sort of have a more holistic narrative of what the EU really is about. Already in the UK media, the frantic reporting of last summer has been replaced by a more passive coverage of events in Greece. Um, after, of course, the referendum was announced, um, even though the situation, as I just outlined, remains unchanged. A fear of further xenophobia and racism in the hands of the right an impediment to the case, which is central to the critical left campaign uh, to remain in the EU, that an alternative Europe is possible? Of course. But not just that. Also an overwhelming sense that we'd just rather not go there. Meanwhile, there, on the ground, we see pain, but also moving acts of solidarity from locals, volunteers, migrants, refugees, passers-by. I think this is how real internationalism is built, and these are the real saviors of today's crisis. Thank you. Thanks very much, Eva. Uh, we now have um, Marko Milankovic, uh, who is a lawyer and research fellow at the Institute of Social Sciences in Belgrade, in Serbia. Uh, he's uh, a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Constitutional Studies and Democratic Development at Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies in Bologna. Shall uh, I bring your slides yep. up?
Yeah, as Michelle says, I, I love my PowerPoints. So, <laughs> so I, pre I prepared one today. And uh, uh, what is idea? Uh, the idea is basically for me to give a Western Balkans perspective, or actually to speak about the transit countries, uh, the countries on the transit route from Turkey, Greece to the to the to, to the rest of the uh, to the rest of the Europe. Uh, uh, what I'm going to speak about is well, why why I propose the position unconditioned burden sharing is trying to connect this issue of handling the, the migration crisis with the, with the attitudes in the countries of the Western Balkans and basically their jo joining efforts or trying to join efforts to uh, handle this crisis. What I'm going to speak about mostly is experiences of Serbia, the country I, uh, I come from, but also giving, the, uh, uh, giving some facts about the, uh, the other, uh, uh, other countries. What I'm proposing in uh, this pre uh, presentation is actually that uh, Western Balkan uh, uh, societies, I, I would say here mostly Serbia, Croatia, which is, which is a recent uh, uh, recent um, member of the EU has demonstrated a willi willingness to adhere to European values. Well, mostly, mostly there has been th there has been uh, a lot of problems in, uh, in in handling this situation. But uh, as my presentation, I think, is going to be like in the in the most positive spirit here, uh, we could we could have seen in the in the in the, in the previous years that basically uh, uh, both local politicians and populations alike have demonstrated, have shown the solidarity with people, uh, with people in need. I, I suppose mostly having in mind that, that the, the, the societies in the region had suffered a lot some 20, 25 years ago. So main points, I'm going to say something about the magnitude and the, and the, and the, and the situation in the Balkans. Uh, uh, what was the response? What are the implications for the region of handling the crisis? And how putting these European values on on its largest test, most probably since the since the since the start of the European uh, uh, integration. What is my basically? What is my opinion? Is is EU able to manage this crisis? And how have uh, countries of the Western Balkan actually demonstrated their ability and willingness to adhere to uh, European values. Uh, so basically coming to the, to, the, to the basic facts, around one million migrants have used the Western Balkan route before it was shut down in March 2016 uh, upon this EU-Turkey uh, agreement. Uh, for our lawyers, it's very interesting because we have a situation that people are actually entering the EU, they are entering the Schengen zone, then they were forced to exit the Schengen zone, go from Macedonia and Serbia and to re-enter the Schengen zone through Hungary. Well, it was a situation up until August when Hungary decided to erect <coughs> the wall. Then the migration route turned to Croatia. It was a little bit chaotic. It was a little, there were a little bit of tensions between Serbia and uh, and, and Croatia, but uh, but at the end, uh, a, a lot of solidarity, I think, has been uh, has been shown. 
What is specific for the Western Balkans is their, there were mostly no intention of migrants to stay in the Western Balkans. So refugees were really aware of the fact that uh, these are the poor countries and that they can't, uh, uh, basically they, they, they can't look for their fortunes there, uh, fortunately for us. So these are some numbers, people, people arriving to Greece, arrivals in 2015, arrivals in 2000, uh, 2016. So what were the countries affected? Mostly affected were, of course, Macedonia and Serbia. And uh, unfortunately, I have to say, Macedonia could not master, master the crisis. So there were some very, very bad examples, as Potis, Potis has outlined. And, and uh, even though I'm very critical, I'm always very critical of Serbian government, I have to say this, this was an occasion where, where it actually behaved quite quite well. Uh, Croatia uh, basically uh, was not that affected until August, as I said, when the Hungary has closed the borders and other states of the Western Balkans mainly remained unaffected with people only occasionally using, using these routes to get to the, to the Western Europe. Bulgaria, okay, it's not a Western Balkans country, but it was partially affected because most migrants didn't uh, feel like using this route, going through from Turkey to Bulgaria to Romania or Serbia to, to try to get it as there, there were many problems and uh, many, many examples of violence against refugees. Now they are using it more and more and there, there are really some grim reports of what is happening to people on their route. So one more picture of of the route for, but I suppose you have all seen it quite often in media. So, uh, why why do I say uh, solidarity rediscovered? Uh, the region has gone uh, under, under under great hardship in the in the nineties. The, the economy uh, has contracted much more than 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 in Greece. Like many many countries lost more than 50% of their GDP from the, uh, from the 80s. Uh, many people from the region actually used to be refugees themselves 20 years ago. They had to re relocate from Bosnia, from Croatia, to go to Serbia, to go to West Europe, to go, to, to go beyond to US, to Australia, and so on. Uh, mostly people coming to the, to, to, to to our region uh, up until 2014. They, they were coming in small numbers and they would mostly stay in Serbia when their smugglers were caught with people. So people would then stay uh, for a couple of months, mostly in Serbia, trying to trying to find a solution for, for their misfortunate situation and trying to get, uh, trying to get on to the Western Europe. So, what are some experiences? What were what were the responses? Uh, well, public administrations. Yet we are speaking about some of the poorest European countries. They have tried to handle uh, the situation in a, in, a, in, a, in a best way they could. 
uh, unfortunately, uh, as I said before, Macedonia couldn't couldn't do it. S Serbia tried to do it uh, 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 quite well, but you are faced, uh, uh, as Greece is faced, with a, with a grim situation. You have thousands of people to shelter, to provide them with medical aid, to provide them with, with uh, yeah, to provide them with uh, 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 food, uh, and it was a it was a really troublesome. It, it, it needed. Uh, EU civil response mechanism to be uh, 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 to be activated. So some aid was actually given to Serbia as a non-member state, which was uh, the the first time. It was a huge mobilization uh, by by the government. It was a huge uh, mobilization by uh, civil civil society, and a lot of solidarity has has been shown. I think we can we can actually be quite proud of that. I'll skip something and come to the come to the last point so the idea was for us to answer the question is EU able to master the crisis and my uh, uh, my answer would be most definitely yes it's not a small crisis but it's not as huge it's not as burdensome it's not well put it like this expensive as the financial crisis was so if we have a union of half a billion people, uh, <coughs> out of which 400, uh, 400 million is living in some of the richest economies on the world. It's really not a problem to help four, five, or six million people in desperate situation. Do you help them in Europe? Do you help them outside of Europe? That's 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 the other question. But it's really appalling to see how how the response was overall slow. So, uh, is there going to be new conditionality uh, for the Western Balkans regarding refugees? We still don't know uh, whether uh, Western Balkan societies are going to be requested to, to, to shelter uh, some of the refugees. Uh, up, until, uh, up until now, only the Serbian Prime Minister actually came, uh, came with, a, uh, with a proposal to uh, resettle a number of refugees, and I have uh, given his statement here from August. We will accept a number of people. We are more European than Europe. That's, that was actually a very interesting, uh, a very interesting thing, being outside of Europe and actually implementing <coughs> European values. So, and the most important thing was we will not <coughs> erect the walls. That was a response to the Hungarian action of closing the border. So overall. Uh, uh, notwithstanding all avoidable or unavoidable flaws at times, I think that uh, 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 mainly Serbia, but also other countries of the regions, has demonstrated capacity to master the crisis. So, to finish with something, with some positive images, on the left-hand side, uh, you have a Croatian policeman holding a child whose mother is receiving a medical aid after making her way from Serbia to Croatia. And uh, on the right-hand <coughs> side, you have a Serbian policeman playing with a Syrian boy who lost his, fami who lost his family. And basically, it was a, a big story in, me uh, in the media and with a funny twist, because it was discovered that the policeman is actually an Albanian. So Albanian policemen working in the Serbian police forces became a, <coughs> became a national star for a, for a couple 
for a couple of days, but sending a very, very positive picture of humanity and solidarity. So with that, I, I, I will finish. Thank you, Marco. Right, well, thanks very much to our speakers. So we have uh, time for questions and discussion. I think we've heard a number of different perspectives, uh, each of them deploying, I think, some version of an idea of Europe and the ways in which we might contest those ideas, what, I, what Europe means and how this notion of Europe relates to uh, uh, phenomena of movement or migration or the refugee or in indeed the notion of crisis. So. Um, I won't try to summarize what were rich presentations, uh, but rather throw it over to you. I'd like to have, um, maybe collect some comments and questions. Do please try to keep your interventions as short as possible so we can hear from as many of you uh, as possible. So, questions or comments? Yes, uh, can I just have a few hands? Uh, anyone else? Yeah, one, okay, great. Let's start with you. For me, the, the issue about Europe is a question of ideology and about how what what makes a difference between those during you know people fleeing the war as vermin and so on that they've been described in some of the national press, or us making the sort of human bonds and links of solidarity with people, and, and I can understand in Serbia where. People have been refugees, or a large portion have been refugees recently. They might, there might be the sort of obvious thing, you know, linked with people's own experience. But a lot of what around the Frankfurt School after Second World War, there's a whole generation of intellectuals quite concerned about how their parents' generation suddenly was won over to Nazism. And I, I, I wouldn't say that Europe's on the verge of fascism, but it's there are parallels about how people can see other humans as, you know, as just a problem, really. Okay, thanks. Um, yes. I think there was already lots of sign from third world and there was problems before and the refugees were coming here. And we have great discussions here and it's fantastic that we look at it. But we didn't look at those issues that time. It gives you some ideas of people who have trouble expected in Europe. And, uh, um, and we didn't take care of them, and we used those refugees for skills and labor for this country to develop. And we didn't look at it deeply enough what will happen if it's going to expand into the bigger problems. Okay, so you mean sort of previous waves of post colonial migration to Britain, the EU, and so forth? Okay, thanks. And the third comment, the back there, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, yeah, about um, just very briefly, I think. You know, you outline some of the very basic framework of responses from different European governments. Um, you know, quite unsatisfactory to be to be frank. It's very disappointing in a way. You know, when it comes to human rights and, and international legal framework that that governs. You know, how we should actually um, welcome refugees, asylum seekers, you know, whether they travel borders or in countries. So, what I'd be interested to hear uh, from you, scholars, is you know, who will hold these governments accountable and the European Union as such, you know, if we are kind of 
being apologetic about their actions because of the number of people, because of the crisis, because of you know financial considerations and stuff like that. So there is at the moment no you know nobody, no authority who actually holds these uh, countries and the European Commission accountable. But I think I would very much welcome you know more thinking into how this can actually be achieved when there is an existing international legal framework. The Okay, thanks. So we have question of ideology, the idea of histories of movement, and questions of accountability raised. So we have already three significant uh, issues. No, we'll come back. I'll take another round. It's related to Okay, question. very quickly. Yep. Okay, um, I'm a migrant myself. Uh, I'm not voting for Brexit. I'm voting in. I'm pro-Europe. And um, just to get to the question, did the Chinese saying, uh, which goes like this, uh, the number of flies which make their way to the kitchen depends on how much food there is. So, um, the migrants are not coming just from Syria and from uh, war-torn countries, but they're also, also coming from Pakistan, Afghanistan, Libya, and you know, from North Africa. So, the more food you put in the kitchen, uh, is, I mean, what, the queue will just land there. There's no stop to that. So uh, we, 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 we all know that resources are scarce and we have to make a choice. I'm, I'm not going back to the racist government where we're an, only an island, there's only a limited number of people who can take. I'm not going back to that, but I'm just saying th these are the um, real concern of the uh, other people in Britain. Okay, thank you. Uh, shall I come back to the panel to address any of those? Issues. So we have question of ideology, question of histories of movement and migration, question of accountability, and a question of comment you raise here uh, about um, kind of finite resources and what is perhaps motivating movement uh, in the world. Yeah. May I start from the last question? So putting food on the table and flies come flying. It's not a question of resources because you need to actually ask yourself why do these people come here? So why is Pakistan and India desolate? Why is Afghanistan impoverished? Why is, okay, Syria is in a war, Afghanistan is in a war, Iraq is in a war, who started that war? And why was that war started to begin with? So even if you don't take that into account, yes, let's assume that you have migrant immigrants trying to come in from third countries outside the EU for economic reasons. Why not put them in good use and induce economic development instead of actually closing down your borders and leaving them out? As you pointed out, you yourself are, are an immigrant. Myself, you know, me and Eva are migrants, we're from Greece. And we are working here and we're contributing. And that was one of the questions Syrians and Afghanis actually, actually asked themselves. So, you know, who actually gave Assad the bombs to level our cities? And even though they should be completely angered with the, you know, Europe as at large, nevertheless, they have this idea of this other Europe being out there, this ideal of a Europe, if you will, that would open its arms to people in need and make good use of their skills internally. And that ties to the question about government reaction and who holds governments accountable. So coming from Greece, I think that the general sentiment is that nobody can hold governments accountable because there is no institutional way to, uh, to hold governments accountable. You can try elections and then you vote for one thing and something else happens. So a technocratic government is put in place instead of the government that you <coughs> voted. You vote no and yes happens. 
So there is no institutional way. Then you try the courts, and the courts tell you something like, the main objective here is the survival of the Eurozone, so let's leave everything else aside. So you're left with just yourself. And that's exactly what was happening in Greece, which I didn't have the time to go into. With the refugee crisis, up until two months ago, so everything that I just described, camps being set up, that are being managed by the military and the police, so effectively government institutions, were not set up until two months ago. For the last year and a half, makeshift camps were catered for by volunteers, NGOs, and the community on the ground, on the city. So you had, in, when you engage in conversation with these people, they will tell you, okay, I'm completely fed up with the political situation. I know I cannot change anything through the institutional routes, but I can at least give a hand to these people. And one of the stark kind of anecdotes, if I, if I may, for two minutes, I live in a working class neighborhood in Thessaloniki, right? One of my neighbors is uh, a dock worker who was fired over the crisis, and he's a stark, so his whole life was the docks, his football team, Pauk, and that's pretty much it, right? So, since we were kids. And the guy five years ago started being a strong advocate of Golden Dawn because blame Angela Merkel, blame, blame the foreigners, shut the borders, blame the immigrants, blame the refugees. And that trend has, they are the only ones that can actually raise any resistance. So since the political establishment is effectively on the same goes for Britain, the same goes for France, is in cahoots with the status quo, so let's go for outsiders. And who's the outsider here? The nationalists, the extra, the, the fascists effectively, the ultra-right. So, and he keeps on this narrative with the refugee crisis as well. So I bumped into him a couple of months ago as I was visiting in Romania, and I come back, I'm stinking, because that's what you get after 20 hours in a, in a refugee camp, a concentration camp, and I bumped into, into George. And it's the first time that he doesn't start, you know, giving me a pep talk about Golden Dawn and refugees and migrants. So I'm trying to kind of instigate the talk. And he just lowers his head and tells me a story. And he goes, a couple of days ago, I was in my flat and I was telling all these things about refugees coming to steal our jobs like flies. For example, you know, hovering uh, around our economic luxuries, uh, financial luxuries. And his grandmother stands up and she goes, she goes out and she comes out with holding two bags. And she tells him, you know, go get the car running. So he goes down and gets the car running. And he tells me, I'm sure, that we are going to her sister, who's 85 years old, lives two, two roads down the, the, the neighborhood, down the block, and we usually take food to her. So he doesn't say anything. He, his grandmother is completely silent. She just holds two bags. And they enter the car. He starts driving towards her sister's place, and she's like, no, 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 no. Take this road and go that way. So he goes that way, she doesn't say a thing. Up until they reach a point of the road, and she says, okay, stop. She goes out, and that place was an occupied, host uh, an occupied hostel, occupied by volunteers and people of solidarity movements that were effectively had turned it into a warehouse where packages were being compiled to be sent off to makeshift camps of refugees, everything from food to uh, baby food to the baby uh, material to material to medicine to you name it so his grandmother still having not said a word opens the door goes out gives her two bags to the volunteers come back comes back to the car and tells him the next time you will open your mouth 
and foul mouth these people. Remember, 50 years ago, they were us. And she said that because for the last 100 years, Greece has gone through not only two world wars, but two civil wars, two dictatorships, two and a half, two dictatorships, and a massive relocation of population, two massive relocation of population in the 1920s and the 1960s. On top of that, you have massive expulsion of leftists, communists in the Balkans. So huge relocations all around. So there is living memory of that. There is living memory of living as a refugee and having to flee your country and coming back. So in the end of the day, it's not about politics. It's not about institutional roots. It's about your you know, inner humanity, if you will whether or not you have these memories. So if you have to work from the bottom up, that's the solution probably, instead of you know, petitions to the ECJ or whatever. Okay, I'm conscious of the time. So shall we uh, take some more comments and questions, I think, just with, in order to hear more from you? I had a few hands go up. Uh, uh, okay, yes. The, the refugees now in Greece or in Turkey I read over two and a half million. Which country won't take them? Because she says the register takes maybe five, six months. And here, Britain takes 20,000 in five years. France took only 9,000 last year. Poland, maybe 400. Who takes them this million people uh, there? Where she go? Nobody. Can, nobody. She's she there for years because there are only three, four countries take refugees. In other countries, they we take only Christians or we want not anybody because some people that's care of Islam or anything. There's a big problems. You register them and then you have this there. Okay. okay. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, Christian. Yeah, I I want to um, to talk about the issue of solidarity really because I think we are not simply bystanders in all this. We are not simply observers of all this situation. And I think when we read the papers, it seems that you, what's happening with the refugees is something that is happening really far away from us. And actually, it isn't far away from us. Um, and I'll come back to this. But uh, also, uh, to me, the issue of solidarity it goes beyond the humanitarian aspect of it. Of course, yes, as human beings uh, and everything that other speakers have put. But to me, the, the, at the center of this is that we have good common interests with these people. Their rights are our rights. When they lose their rights, societies become much worse for everybody. And I think what, whatever I thought he said about Greek society is very, very true. Societies become much worse when sections of people become more brutalized and become more marginalized and they're losing their rights. So it's in everybody's interest in this country and everywhere else that refugees are treated humanely. It doesn't have to be a crisis. It's a created crisis. Governments could simply say, we open the borders and we let them in. You know, how can it be that the richest societies of the world have got money to bail out, you know, um, uh, bankers to uh, allow, you know, underwrite so-and-so uh, -so, uh, debts that we all pay for, and they don't have money to house, you know, some, some people who flee war and, and poverty. So that's one issue. The second issue is that really refugees have got their, their own agency. You know, they, they made governments take action. They walked. They said, you know, we don't trust anyone. We are going to walk and we are going to make you take some action. And all the way through their walk in Europe, thousands of people showed solidarity to them, including people in Britain here after, particularly after the, the death of the, the little boy, Ireland. Um, 
So to come back to Britain, really, there are things that we can all do to make our governments accountable, and I think is to put collective pressure on our governments. And anyone who wants to, to be part of this, this Saturday there is a convoy, it's called Convoy London to Calais, and it's organized by various trade unions and other organizations. And thousands of people are going to go from London to Calais to show real solidarity, to bring money, to bring uh, messages of support, to bring uh, other provisions that, that refugees need. Okay, thanks. I had two hands up there in the top. Yes, you and you. Strike me is seeing Lenin, you know, people like him, 
hold us, they bring in this norm to our norm. This is a known norm, something we already know. And we know what the problem is. The thing is, where do we go from here? When we analyze where the problem is, and we analyze how where the problem is, you know, stems from, but we're not dealing with the root of the problem. I think the root of the problem is to deal and destabilize you being positioned as a center of civilization and as a center of problem. The more we're able to destabilize Europe to that global center, uh, center of uh, civilization, the more we'll be able to solve the problem in the world. Because man, the refugee crisis has its, uh, or it has its own uh, reasons. There are reasons behind why the, you know, the crisis itself uh, you know, blew up. I mean, how do we solve that philosophy behind that crisis? We look at uh, what happened in uh, uh, Libya, looking into what's happening in uh, Syria, looking into what's happening in Iraq. All these are prepared under the notion of, you know, uh, uh, democracy. We want, we, we want, we want to expand democracy around the world, and we really expand the democracy around the world, or we expand the problem under the world. I mean, I see my architect myself as an example. You know, being a black man, I do understand that uh, my rights are just a patient of justice. There's no justice. But the problem is, should I really lay back? I got two questions. The problem is, can I lay back and just watch this problem that I know what it is, or go ahead to fight? If I want to fight, how can I fight? There's just no way. I think what we should be doing right here is every time we confronted with this problem, rather than face the problem, we should face the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is you and the philosophers. Okay. All right. I'm conscious of the time. Uh, we're meant to wrap up uh, by eight. Um, I just want to give a final uh, round of comments to uh, our panelists, um, starting with Nadine. Um, thanks, everyone, for all your comments. Um, I'm I'll just say a few things. Um, I do think that starting at the root of the problem is important, and I don't think that Britain has ever dealt with the legacy of racism of um, colonialism and empire. The empire justified its existence on the basis that British people, white British people, were racially superior to others. That, that has never been dealt with, and that still exists today. Um, we're dealing with the racist dehumanization of brown and black people. Um, and I think that it's interesting you bring up Alan Kurdi because I thought a lot about what it was about that particular photograph that all of a sudden people seem to care about um, refugees. Um, and I do think it was a light-skinned child, a child and a light-skinned child. All of a sudden, and there was this hashtag, could be my child, yet all of these white mothers tweeting pictures of themselves with their baby saying, you know, could be my child. But Alan Kurdi couldn't have been their child, of course, because as Stuart said at the beginning, they're here because we were there. Um, colonialism creates structures which privilege white people and um, means that the global south, uh, people from the global south are stopped from moving and um, have shorter life expectancies, etc. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing that comes from that is an arrogance. And I have to say the comment about um, 
the Chinese proverb, etc., flies, as applied to this case, is is a dangerous one, a dehumanizing one, to describe migrants as as vermin, um, as flies. Um, of course, I, I know that that isn't what you what you meant to do, but That's it has been done. You know, I know, I know absolutely, but I just I just think it's better to steer clear of that. But it also, I think, hints at an arrogance that people everywhere want to come here. When this um, uh, demonization of Turkey was used um, around, recently around the EU referendum, you know, Turkish people were saying, why would we want to go and live in a racist, cold, expensive country? How dare they? Our family come and visit us here if they want to come here. You know? People are happy where they are. And when they move because they have to, because they're living in desperate poverty or there is an invasion of their country, um, this is not some natural cause. This is a human-made crisis of harm, normally falling at the feet of Western Northern leaders. Um, and they have to take some responsibility for that. And they have to take responsibility for their past actions. Um, and there have to be reparations, etc. Um, so that's what I would say. As to what we can do, um, I don't, you know, I, I think that as you were saying, if we're just left with our bodies, we have limited capacities to what we can do, but there are things that we can do, as Christina said. On Monday 20th as well, there's a protest at the Australian Embassy, uh, a great example of, um, of putting uh, refugees in concentration camps that the Brexit campaign really want to follow. If um, we're, we are protesting there at 1 p.m. on Monday outside the Australian, Australian Embassy, which is just on the Strand near the LSE on Aldwych, um, and we're drawing the connection precisely with this is not, you know, this is not what we should be following here, which we clearly are with the EU Turkey deal. So that's a, that's one thing that, that okay. you know, you can Thanks. Thanks. Yes, would you like to meet this Well, just briefly to address some of the things uh, that were mentioned. Uh, I, I start with the history. Uh, very brief history. Very brief, yeah, yeah, very <laughs> short history. <laughs> short history. Well, I mean, I, I, I have to say I'm, I, I'm astonished by the, by the, uh, by the position of the most of the East European countries, and primarily by Hungary. Uh, we should recall 1956, when uh, hundreds of thousands of people had to flee Hungary after the Soviet uh, invasion. They, they, they uh, found their shelter in Austria and Yugoslavia at the, at the first time, and they were, uh, they were uh, accepted. And, I mean, all over, over the Eastern Bloc, people were actually trying to, to trying to get out, and somehow uh, their politicians tend to tend to forget that. Uh, the second thing uh, uh, is a is a capacity of mastering uh, crisis. Of course, there is a capacity. It's uh, it's shame that uh, 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 these poor people were not helped uh, in Lebanon, uh, in in. Uh, Jordan, these uh, these countries are are are, are facing with uh, uh, with the millions of refugees. Uh, I turn back to to Serbian case. Serbia had around one million refugees. So now we are talking about one million refugees in in in, in all of the Europe. Serbia had over the nineties one million refugees. It had uh, two uh, um, uh, two hundred fifty thousand people entering in three days. So we we we. Uh, is, is there ability and capacity for administrations to 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 face it? Of course, of course there is. I mean, of course there is. And uh, thirdly, to uh, to finish, uh, I think it all goes uh, down to values of the union. 
I mean, 80s and 90s were party. Everything was easy, and everybody wanted to be in. And now, when you face uh, uh, now when you face the problems, uh, uh, I I have to say that you basically uh, uh, this this is this might be depressing. This might be grim, but. Uh, I think, and I propose that, does this really reveal the nature of the union where everybody is in only uh, for interests? And when you don't have an interest, you just leave the union and you don't want to deal with, uh, with hard stuff. That is, that is a depressing, depressing thing, okay. which I finish. Thank you. I think I'll just then make very, two very brief comments. The one on generally accountability and the emphasis that the audience itself has placed uh, on political and civic uh, forms of accountability rather than legal, and our choice probably to do that, I think is um, just illustrative of the broader crisis also that is at play as lawyers, which is the legal crisis. I mean, the reason not to talk about law here is that e the European Union has a tremendous crisis of EU, of laws, of, of what it means to be regulated by something with legal form, okay? The rule of law has largely collapsed. Much of what it has done in the financial crisis is not within the structures of the treaties, but the migration crisis, the Dublin regulations have been suspended. All these mechanisms that traditionally, you know, make us think as lawyers about the way to approach and frame and deal with a crisis are no longer there in the form. We know them. And this is quite important. You could do a human rights claim. There's many cases pending at the moment in front of the Court of Justice and the European Court of Human Rights um, from various, I think, from Greek people that are stuck in various camps and so on. But I don't think this is in itself, in itself sort of um, revealing that the law is absent because it is largely absent. Um, the other, I think, general point has more to do about the permanence of that. So somebody raised the fact that this, is, this crisis has a history. And of course, even things like the EU-Turkey agreement, um, Libya was performing the exact same role before Gaddafi fell. Libya was receiving tons of money to patrol the European border. <coughs> Europe has always been, free movement internally has always meant a securitization and patrolling of the external borders of Europe. And of course, after the Arab Spring, after the destabilization of uh, North Africa, and after also the Syrian war, they left themselves with no proxy to be able to carry that. This is, what, this is why I think it's also a border crisis and not a migration crisis, above all. And looking into the future about this notion <coughs> of permanence, and this is, I think, something that Fortis might uh, speak much more about because I'm also not a migration lawyer myself, but what we witness in Greece is a normalization of the migration crisis. Um, so from these ad hoc camps, they've now been moved into sort of old army um, buildings where what we see is, you know, the provision of some level of education, some level of schools, you have various things, activities that we try to implement. Of course, this is all positive for the refugees, but th think of the flip side of this which is that you, you're normalizing their own condition and refugee or migrant within society when, and excluding them from the normal course of life. And this is something nobody is taking them. And they're stuck in Greece, and this situation, I think, is taking routes that are quite dangerous. Uh, uh, that's all I have to say. Very briefly. So what can you do? You're absolutely right. 
deconstruct that dumb elitist fallacy that Ophanimes, the Europeans have of, of themselves, which is not only kind of racially induced, if you will, but economically induced. It's kind of a class racism, if you will. And the reason that the Syrian crisis resonated with Europe is because we're talking about light-skinned people that are lecturers and doctors and well-educated and have smartphones and they're not barbarian Islamist goat herders from the Afghanistan or Pakistan who are coming in to dilute our beautiful civilization. So you're absolutely right. So do that in your writings, do that in your discussions to begin with, and then whenever you can throw a wrench in the system, be it through taking to the streets like the friends are doing. And by the way, if you ask the friends a year ago if they would take the streets for three, for a month and a half now, in a general strike, they would call you crazy, and nevertheless, they've done so. So take the street, take to the streets, work with your fellow people in solidarity movements, and if you know you have to vote to leave the union in a Brexit just by you know in order to throw a wrench in the system, knowing that what you end up with is the crazies of this world, like Nigel Farage's and the likes, but nevertheless creating a shock across Europe, well, why the, why the hell not do that? So that's my answer to what you need to do. And in terms of tempor and temporary and non-temporary solutions, and where do these people go from Turkey? Well, nowhere. The, U uh, the UN High Commission of Refugees, which actually has architects that design the camps, are designing the camps in the likes of the camps that still exist in Rwanda, and they have existed since the, since the Tutsi were in the beginning of the 1990s. They have existed for, for 25 years now. And actually, the, there are people who are relocated from those camps to the UK right now, today. And they have people, officers from the asylum service here, that actually help them to learn how to switch on a light because they have lived all their lives in a refugee camp. So it seems that this, that's where we're going with Turkey permanent camps, permanent locations for the next 30 years until something happens. So throw our rents in the system and let something happen. Over the islands into camps. <laughs> yeah. Okay, thank you. Well, I am just going to close with uh, some uh, small remarks. I am quite optimistic. I think I'm optimistic because you're here, uh, which means you care and you're thinking. I also believe that, as I said at the outset, Exile, thought broadly, is a place from which to think. Uh, we are potentially talking about the possibility of uh, withdrawing from Europe. That's one way of thinking about what the road ahead is. We're also thinking about whether or not Europe is a place in which we can be at home. That's one of the questions that we're asking. So in order to think about this, I want to close with a poem from Mahmoud Dawish, who is a Palestinian poet, and the poem is titled, Who Am I Without Exile? It is a long poem, which you could read in its entirety for yourself, but I'm just going to read an extract from it. So uh, Darwish writes, there's nothing left of me but you, and nothing left of you but me, the stranger massaging his stranger's thigh. Oh stranger, what will, what will we do with what is left to us of calm and of snooze between two myths. What are these two myths? Nothing carries us, not the road, Brexit, and not the house, Europe. These are the two myths, I think. That there is not a road and that there is not a house. 
Was this road always like this from the start, or did our dreams find a mare on the hill among the Mongol horses and then exchange us for it? And what will we do? What will we do without exile? He's writing, of course, as a Palestinian uh, and of a people who have spent much of the last uh, half a century uh, in one or other form of exile. But what he's writing about also is that there is a difference, I think, between saying no road and this is not the road. You can keep being critical and saying um, this is not the road. That does not mean that there is no road to be taken. You can also say this is not the house. That does not mean that the position you're left with is that there is no house. So I think that does mean that we really have to think, we, we have to be thinking very carefully about the, particularly the decision we all, if you're voting next week, uh, have, have to make. But I think it's not, I, I don't think it's as pessimistic as thinking that there is no possibilities in Europe or that there is something, uh, that there isn't anything other than uh, uh, Brexit as a possibility. So thank you to our panelists and also to you for your really thoughtful uh, comments and to Professor Stewart, uh, who Slept. is uh, no longer with us, but uh, is of course uh, uh, force the force behind uh, law on trial and the fact that every year we have uh, a, a set of interrogations around an important uh, a theme. And this year, of course, for obvious reasons, it is Europe. There are two more. Uh, sessions left uh, tomorrow and uh, on Friday. The details are obviously on the law school website and I hope to see uh, uh, you again over the next couple of days. So thanks very much.